Hey guys, um, so I'm going over um, the review for hypertension and um, cardiac. We're going to start off um, with knowing um, your heart, where to listen to your heart sounds. Um, so know that your point of maximum impulse, which is that apical pulse, um, which is the equivalent to your mitral valve sound. It's in your fifth intercostal of your mid-clavicular line. When you're looking at your EKGs, uh, know um, that um, your QRS complex represents a depolarization of the ventricles, and that initial P wave represents your atrial depolarization. And then your um, T wave is a ventricular repolarization. So um, every heart rate, um, in order for it to be regular, uh, requires a P wave before every QRS. Um, and then those T waves um, should be above the axis of the line. So we know that whenever there's um, changes of ischemia or injury, we may see some changes in that ST um, segment. Um, our hearts are based on an electrical conduction system um, that starts off um, with that SA node in the right atrium, and that is a pacemaker of your heart. So that's the one that tells the rest of the heart, hey, you need to pump at this rate, etc. Um, and then that conduction system, that electricity gets transferred over to the AV node um, down your um, the septa and into the um, the walls of the right and left ventricle following those little Purkinje fibers which are like um, following all that tissue. Um, in the case that there's something that's interrupting this electricity then obviously we would see those changes um, in an EKG and they would tell us that there's an area that is not getting enough um, conduction of that electricity. Um, ventricular hypertrophy, so whenever the heart muscle has to work extra hard, whether it's because of increased blood pressure or anything that's impeding its normal um, contractility and function, those um, wall cells are going to harden. When they harden, they become thickened, they become hypertrophied, um, and that is what um, that ventricular hypertrophy is telling us that the heart is having to pump harder, um, doing extra work to get the same job done. Um, when we were saying about those changes in those ST um, areas, um, whenever there's a depressed ST segment, um, it is equivalent to um, myocardial um, ischemia, while ST elevations are um, significant of infarction. Okay, so we said those um, ST elevations or those stemmings, um, it means there has been some injury, um, but hopefully if we are able to reperfuse that tissue, then hopefully we will be able to save um, that area of injury. Um, however, obviously, if time goes by and there is no reperfusion, um, then those areas will now become um, completely um, an irreversible damage. 
Um, normal sinus rhythm, we said a normal heart rate is anywhere from 60 to 100 um, on the average in um, adults. Um, obviously, those numbers may change depending on the patient condition, and those um, slight differences may be normal for that individual, but um, for the norm, we're looking at 60 to 100 in, in an adult, um, and there should be a P wave before every QRS complex um, in order to um, see that. When we're calculating based on a strip that we may see, um, if the um, if we have a P before PQRS, 30 of the large squares um, would be equivalent to six seconds of time. So if the rhythm is regular, then we can take whatever is calculated in those six seconds, multiply by 10, and that would give us one minute um, reading. Again, we're calculating the peaks of um, that R, so those R peaks, um, and those peaks would be um, the numbers that we're counting, multiply by 10, and that would be 60 seconds. Um, with the changes um, in aging, we know we want to um, make sure that we are educating patients to change positions um, slowly in order to allow for that blood flow to regain to the um, brain, where there's gonna be um, you know, proper perfusion, because if there isn't, other patients may have um, dizzy spells and in turn may um, get dizzy and fall. Um, two types of um, hypertension that um, specifically affect the elderly population um, are orthostatic, which is in the changes of movement, um, and then those postprandial, which is about an hour and a half after eating, they'll um, become hypotensive, so if they get up really fast, um, their brains will not reperfuse, and then they would get dizzy and be at risk for falls. When you have patients that come in with any kind of arrhythmia or regular heart rate, one of the labs that we want to make sure that we are um, checking are those electrolyte imbalances. Um, electrolytes such as sodium, potassium, calcium, any of those, if there's any abnormality, oftentimes they will show up with some um, EKG abnormalities and changes. Um, so if we're able to address those electrolyte imbalances, hopefully we're able to reverse whatever arrhythmia is going on. Um, if those electrolytes are normal, then we would have to look for a different cause for that arrhythmia, more of on a, on a cardiac level, whether it's um, injury or um, some sort of anatomical issue that's going on there. Um, orthostatic hypertension, I mean, orthostatic blood pressures, um, if you um, need to take them on a patient, we're doing comparisons of three positions, and then based on um, those three readings, um, it would tell us if there's something um, that's causing a delay um, in the blood flow to be um, the same. So you would take it to fine, wait five minutes, have them sit up um, with their legs hanging on the side of the bed, um, take it and then um, standing up um, and we are looking for any um, substantial differences so anything over 20 millimeters of mercury in difference that would tell us um, that there is a delay in um, perfusion. When we're doing um, capillary refill checks um, when we're doing these um, cardiovascular assessments, we're checking usually the nail beds for blanching. Again, um, if a patient has um, acrylic nails or really, really dark nail polish, um, then we can do it on the toes, we can do it on the bottom uh, 
of the pads of the fingers, um, anywhere where we're going to see a reperfusion um, occur. Um, we said, you know, we want anything less than three seconds to be considered normal. Anything over three seconds in a capillary refill is considered delay. Um, and it would give us an indication that something is preventing proper blood flow. Um, when we're listening to heart sounds, we want to um, listen that there is um, regular heartbeats. Um, an S1, S2, we did say that some S3s, S4s may be um, physiological um, changes, which may be normal for the patient. Um, but again, we want to document if we are hearing those sounds when we're hearing them. Um, are they always there or is it something that occurs ever so often? Does it change with any position, um, etc.? Uh, so when you're listening to heart sounds, if at any point, whether when you're listening over the carotid or the aorta, um, if you listen to um, a brewery which makes like a swishing sound, um, it means that there is some narrowing of that artery. So something is obstructing um, the proper flow of it. Um, so obviously these patients um, oftentimes have like some plaque formation that's going on in there. Um, and that is what's causing this obstruction of flow. Um, as far as murmurs, um, they are on a ratio scale from one to six, um, one being the mildest murmur um, as far as sound. Um, those are the ones that sometimes you may not even hear um, all the time. Sometimes the patient may have to change positions for you to hear it. Um, and they're very mild. Those are usually your innocent murmurs. Um, they just have to be evaluated for changes, but for the most part, they don't do or cause any issues for that patient. While you're um, grade six, so when they would be documented, it would be six out of six. Um, those are your loudest ones. And oftentimes you don't even have to fully put a stethoscope um, to hear them. And again, um, obviously these are some, um, probably some congenital heart defects um, that are causing this abnormality. Um, if you have um, a client who comes in with a rule out heart attack or having chest pain, um, we know we're going to get um, an EKG to see um, if there's anything um, abnormal there. However, um, the EKG only measures um, 60 seconds of a person's heart rate. So obviously, if there is an abnormality that may not be present yet or may not show up yet, obviously, this wouldn't be a good Reading, which is why they would repeat it um, to see if anything changes. However, um, any cardiac, any patient that's getting a cardiac corkup would need um, cardiac enzymes to be checked. We talked about a few of them, but the one that's the most um, accurate as far as being that biomarker for um, the heart injury or infarction are your troponins. Um, the troponins will be elevated um, shortly after the injury has occurred. And um, there's two types. There's troponin I and troponin T. Troponin T can last up to 14 days um, in the system. So if the client maybe had mild symptoms or maybe didn't seek medical attention right away, checking those troponins will still show up positive, that troponin T, up to 14 days. So it's a good indication um, that something occurred. So patients, um, there's different reasons why they um, have um, risk factors for coronary artery disease. We said that coronary artery disease um, is that plaque formation, um, those fatty lipids that um, are building up on the inside 
um, of those vessels. Um, originally, they're, um, they start off as a streep, um, which continue to build up because it is progressive. So it's important um, that if it is present, that patients are taking every precaution and um, making those lifestyle changes that are going to help uh, prevent the further um, growth of those um, plaques. Because then um, as they become bigger and harder, um, if there's anything that causes a piece of it to break off, the body is going to identify this as an injury and then deploy all these platelets in order to quote unquote fix. Um, and in turn, it's that clot is going to further obstruct that vessel um, and obviously causing um, a more um, severe obstruction. So those modifiable risk factors include cholesterol. So anybody who has high cholesterol or has some sort of abnormal cholesterol readings um, should start those lifestyle changes. And then if that's not enough, then they would need to be on medication for it. Blood pressure, um, keeping in track um, those blood pressures, um, keeping them within normal range. Um, the diabetics, we want them to have good um, glycemic control um, because diabetes, um, that hyperglycemia is going to damage the endothelium of the vessels. So it's just going to contribute um, to further um, damage of those vessels. Um, smoking, we want them to stop smoking. We want them to have um, some activity, some exercise um, to prevent having them sedentary lifestyle, which in turn is also going to help with any obesity, especially that waist circumference that um, um, that just increases the risk. Non-modifiable risk factors include age. Um, as patients get older, the risk goes up. Um, gender, ethnicity, and family history. In the event that there is um, some sort of um, occlusion to the blood flow of the heart cells, um, if that patient has not developed that collateral circulation where we said it's like the bypassing um, of the obstruction, um, within 20 minutes, those cells are going to um, lose their viability. So they're going to die off. Um, and in turn, anytime that you have... Um, you know, death of heart tissue um, and causing those infarctions, there's going to be permanent damage to the heart and it's not going to be able to function the way that it's intended to. Um, patients have had severe um, heart attacks or maybe repeated heart attacks that have had um, more than one episode of, of injury or severe injury um, will end up usually with some sort of degree of cardiac failure. Um, when we're looking at um, arterial diseases, um, we want to make sure, oh, back to, I'm sorry, back to the risk factors of coronary artery in those um, modifiable, we talked about cholesterol, um, but know your levels, you know, we want um, total cholesterol um, to be under 200, triglycerides to be under 150, LDL to be less than 130, HDL we want it more than 40 in men and more than 50 in women in order to keep a good level. So anything that's um, variance of that, um, obviously it's going to increase their risk. And same thing with blood pressure, we want those readings less than 120 over 80. Okay, when we're talking about peripheral arterial disease, so we know that there's something that's obstructing the artery flow to the distal um, extremities. Um, so obviously there's gonna be changes in the color, this, um, the temperature, um, the texture of the skin. So oftentimes um, 
patients that have um, peripheral arterial disease are going to have thin, shiny, um, hairless um, areas where the distribution, um, because they're not getting proper blood flow, um, it's going to show um, as um, hair distribution is not going to be normal. In addition to that, um, there's also going to be an increased capillary refill time because obviously there's not enough blood flow going. Um, the temperature is going to be cool to touch. Um, patients may complain of cramping, sharp, burning pain, which is that intermittent claudication that occurs um, once the patient, um, which is usually with activity. So once the patient rests for a few minutes, the pain will go away. Um, and they may have ulcers, but the ulcers are like little round punch biopsies um, that look like that. Well, with peripheral vascular disease, um, there's going to be a lot of edema present. Um, capillary refill time is going to be decreased because that blood is literally pooling there and not being able to return back to the heart. Um, because there's edema, obviously the legs are going to be swollen. And the temperature is going to be warm to normal. Um, they may report pain, but it's not like sharp, um, um, episodic pain. Um, it's usually going to be a dull, constant pain, and then the skin is going to get thick and hard, um, and there may be changes in color. Um, with venous insufficiency, we may also see um, stasis ulcers. Um, so basically the blood is pulling there, it's causing these ulcerations, which are gonna be very difficult to heal. They're often very painful for the patient. Um, and um, therefore very often you're gonna need um, to get some wound, um, like a wound clinic um, evaluation and to help them heal. Um, Back to the um, peripheral arterial, we talked about that intermittent claudication, which again, they're intermittent episodes where they get this pain and then it goes away when they get rust. Um, if it becomes an issue, um, pentosophylline, um, which is Trental, um, is an option to give patients. It helps with the pain. However, as um, it becomes progressively worse, this arterial disease, um, then they're gonna go from intermittent claudication to rust um, to pain at rest, usually at night, um, and if they're able to put their legs um, dependent, so lord, um, like hanging off the bed, um, they're going to have um, some relief. Of course, pain at rest is an indication that it has the disease process has become um, substantially worse, um, and therefore um, they would need probably um, further intervention. Um, um, we talked about critical limb ischemia, where that chronic ischemic rest pain is lasting more than two weeks. Um, and because um, there's not good flow going to those areas, those um, arterial ulcers may become gangrenous and in turn may lead to amputation because of cell death. Um, okay, with those peripheral arterial, we want to make sure 
um, that we're keeping, um, that they're exercising to develop collateral circulation. And um, we want to keep those um, extremities warm and protected from, um, from the environment. So we don't want them to be exposed um, to severe coldness, um, stress, caffeine, nicotine, anything that can cause vasoconstriction or anything that would be restrictive of blood flow, like crossing their legs for long periods of time or anything that's um, excessively tight. Um, oftentimes, we want to have them more socks to keep their feet warm. Um, let's see. For um, venous thromboembolism, um, we said blood has um, pooled and formed a clot um, for diagnosis is D-dimer, um, but the gold standard is that venous duplex ultrasound because it's able to tell us the vessel, is there any issues with the valves, is there a clot, how much obstruction, etc. The D-dimer um, does tell us if there is a possibility. However, in some autoimmune disorders, um, the D-dimer can be um, always elevated, not necessarily because there is a pulmonary embolism. Um, at the time. Um, if there's any chance that a patient has a DVT or we're ruling on a DVT, um, any area that may be um, swollen, red, tender to touch, we really don't want um, anybody to be massaging it at the risk that um, a clot um, can break off and um, get lodged somewhere um, in the brain or the heart, etc. Okay, the risk factors for venous thromboembolism, you know, anything that um, causes immobility or um, improper blood flow um, to those lower extremities. So patients that have um, a history of hip surgery or total knee replacement or any of that um, usually are at higher risk. Same thing if there's going to be immobility for um, a period of time or pregnancy when where um, things are being constricted and blood flow. <clears throat> Um, hey, um, for medications um, that we give with um, venous thromboembolism, um, you have your anticoagulants, which um, an example is warfarin or coumadin. Um, the antidote for warfarin or coumadin um, is vitamin K. Those anticoagulants slow down um, the response in the body for uh, forming clots, um, and that's how they work. Then you have your low molecular weight heparin, such as um, anoxaparin, which is Lovenox. Um, it comes with a little bubble um, subcutaneously in that abdominal fat tissue. Um, we don't want um, to expel that bubble or rub the site afterwards. Um, for Lovenox, just like regular heparin, the um, antidote is protamine. Um, in those venous... Um, um, Peripheral venous disease, um, whenever there's um, a recommendation for using compression stockings, um, those patients tend to have a lot of swelling and edema, so the best time for them to put on those compression stockings, which is going to help with circulation, is preferably first thing in the morning um, because it's when the swelling um, is going to be at its minimum, and that's when they're going to be able to put on those stockings um, the best um, and um hopefully prevent that further inflammation during the day. Um, we talked that um, in those PVDs, 
um, they have these venous stasis ulcers. So stasis means that the blood is pulling there and it's causing, um, because the blood um, is not oxygenated anymore when it gets there, it causes a delay in healing. Um, and oftentimes um, we need to use these moist environmental dressings, which are gonna pull um, that moisture from the inside to kind of help um, pull um, and heal by secondary intention. But because there's such a delay, oftentimes they're gonna need more um, aggressive wound care. Um, and usually that's why they will be um, referred to um, wound care clinics. Um, and we're talking about um, varicosities, varicose of the veins. Um, the most part is um, that there are physiological, um, <clears throat> that they're caused by um, weakness of those, um, oh my God, they're idiopathic and it's caused by weakness in the vein walls. So by having this extra pressure in them, the weakness of the wall is gonna make them distended and um, patients are gonna complain that they have this heavy, achy feeling, especially if they're um, either standing for long periods of time or sitting for long periods of time. And if they do the opposite activity, usually that heavy, achy feeling is gonna be relieved. Um, however, those um, there are varicose veins that are secondary from other injuries or from something else that's causing this increased pressure, such as esophageal ulcers, um, the vulva and varicose seals or hemorrhoids. Those are all varicose veins in different body parts that are secondary to something else. Um, treatment for varicose veins, sometimes there's medications that help with the pain. Um, those are... Um, Venoactive drugs, um, they're plant-derived, they're over-the-counter, um, and they help with that cramping pain and um, edema that comes with it. Um, sometimes those varicose veins can't be um, our candidates for sclerotherapy, where basically they're being injected in order to burn the vessel and destroy that vein. But again, they have to be less than five millimeters in diameter. Um, we don't want them to be one of those bigger um, veins. Um, um, when we talked about hypertension, um, we said um, that a proper diagnosis for hypertension, there needs to be at least two elevated readings in two or more different visits. Um, so there needs to be um, a correlation that the, the patient is having elevated blood pressure, not as a one-time incident because maybe they're feeling sick or they're not feeling good or um, they don't like to go to the doctor. Um, it needs to be in separate occasions to find a good correlation between it. Um, when you're taking your blood pressures, it's always important to use the right size cuff. It should be covering 80% of circumference. Um, the, the indicator that goes over the brachial artery should be in its proper place because that's where it's going to be picking up on that um, heart rate. Um, and obviously we want it to be the right size in order to not have um, an erroneous elevation or an erroneous um, lower reading. Patients that have hypertension or risk for hypertension should have low sodium and low fat diets. Um, sodium helps um, retaining fluid and in turn will elevate their heart, their um, blood pressure as well. When we're talking about treatments, um, with your thiazide diuretics, such as hydrochlorothiazide, um, they are um, they help potassium excretion, so they will need um, potassium supplementation. Thiazide diuretics um, take about two to four weeks to start working, so patients should be educated um, 
of that timeline. That way they're not um, getting frustrated that their readings are not um, lowering. Um, then you have loop diuretics, such as furosemide or Lasix, um, which are used um, often with patients that have heart failure to help um, release that um, excess fluid buildup. Um, however, they also um, help excrete potassium, so therefore patients should be on potassium supplementation or eating potassium-rich foods, um, and they should have regular um, documentation of their electrolytes. Um, if a patient is unable to tolerate those other um, diuretics due to um, excessive loss of potassium, um, other options are potassium sparing diuretics, such as spironolactone. Um, however, because they hold on to potassium, we don't want to use them with patients that have um, kidney failure. Um, we want patients to avoid potassium supplementation or um, salt substitutes, which are going to add um, extra potassium so they can run the risk of having hyperkalemia. Beta blockers, we said that there's different kinds. You have cardioselective, non-cardioselective, and combination alpha and beta. Um, so those beta blockers, um, in addition to decreasing blood pressure, they're also going to decrease heart rate. Um, so we need to be um, taking vital signs prior to administration to make sure the patient um, isn't bradycardic, that um, we would have to hold the dose. Um, and in our diabetic patients, we want them to make sure that they are monitoring their um, blood glucose um, via um, finger stick and not just looking for signs and symptoms of hypoglycemia because beta blockers can mask those symptoms. Um, your non-cardioselective beta blockers, such as propanolol, since they affect um, not just beta um, cells of the heart, but also of other bodies. They can cause uh, bronchospasms in patients that have reactive airway disease, such as asthma. So those wouldn't be um, good options for those. Calcium channel blockers, um, patients should avoid taking them, um, taking grapefruit juice, um, because it can cause toxic um, effects in them. Um, we talked about um, adrenergic um, inhibitors such as clonidine. Um, clonidine, we said um, patients can have withdrawal syndromes. Um, they can have this rebound um, hypertension. Um, and we would um, obviously have to be careful um, with that if they just stop taking it. Uh, okay, ACE inhibitors. Um, Um, those are the prills um, because they work on the kidneys. Um, we want to monitor kidney function. Um, and um, some patients, we said, can get um, that dry, hacky cough, which is non-life-threatening. Um, but if the patient were to get this, um, they would have other options um, to be switched over. However, those ACE inhibitors can, in some individuals, cause angioedema, and then we would be concerned about airway monitoring, and that would become more of a um, life-threatening emergency until we prove um, that the patient's airway is stable. Um, if the patient 
um, developed a dry hockey cough um, with your ACE inhibitors. Other options would be angiotensin II receptor antagonists, which are those that end in sartan, um, and those um, help with those patients that developed cough. Um, however, these also have a risk for angiotema, and again, patients should be advised that if they start with any um, swelling of the lips, mouth, tongue, um, they need to seek immediate medical attention because we need to verify um, that their airway is um, okay. Um, hypertensive emergencies, remember we're looking at over really elevated um, blood pressure readings. Um, it usually occurs um, not immediately. It's usually something that's building up for a few days. Um, and patients usually come in pretty symptomatic, severe headache, blurry vision, dizziness, um, nosebleeds. Um, and obviously, if they're not being treated appropriately, they can go into a coma. Treatment for these would be IV antihypertensives because um, we want to have good control of the patient's um, blood pressure lowering. Um, we never want to lower it too fast at the risk of having um, issues with their neurostatus or causing a brain bleed. Um, so these patients would need to be monitored um, very often their blood pressure. Um, and obviously we'd also be um, monitoring your EKG to make sure um, that there's not having any cardiac um, issues. Okay, and that is it for this week, guys.